Hello. Good morning to you all. Am I on? Good? Yes, great. Fantastic. Well, good to be with you all. Blessings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was such a lovely reading. Still wonderful to have kids participating in worship here at East Campus. We're continuing our series in Deuteronomy. We'll be in Deuteronomy 4. If you want to open up your copy of God's Word, it'll be very helpful. Um, as always, we hope to just be sticking to the text the whole time, and what is said through the sermon is just basically regurgitating what God has already said to us in his word, and so it'll be really important for you to have a copy of God's word. And just a reminder, if you're newer joining us uh, to the Deuteronomy series, chapters 1 to 4, we've seen a rehearsing of the history of God's people, primarily their failure, and at the same time, a simultaneous emphasis on God's faithfulness and provision for his people despite their, um, despite their own faithfulness. And so then chapter 4, what happens is Moses, here he is kind of preaching this sermon. There's a few sermons throughout the book of Deuteronomy that he preaches. And basically he t- makes a turn. He says, therefore, in light of 1 to 3, now listen and live. And so we're in this section on listening and living and hearing God's word on his commands to us and his provisions for us and the mercy that he's provided. And so, uh, so good. Here are the questions, two questions that Deuteronomy 4 is basically answering in terms of what it means to be a Christian. And real quick, if you're here and you're newer to Christianity or still exploring if uh, Christianity is true, I'm really glad that you're here because you'll find these two questions are really core to what it means to become a Christian and to live the Christian life. And so it's good for you to understand kind of these basic principles of what Christianity is all about. The two questions is basically this. Number one, how do we resist the temptation to sin? How do we resist the temptation to sin when we are enticed to do things? We're all, right, every day, every week, we're all enticed in different ways to do things, participate in things uh, that our conscience would say is a big no-no and also God's word would clearly say is a huge no-no. And yet we find ourselves, whoa, you know, I'm wanting to go in that direction. How do you resist that? What do you do? Uh, the second question is, if we fail, maybe we should say, when we fail, when we sin, how does the Lord respond to us? What is his heart towards us? How does he engage with us in the midst of our sins? So those are the two questions. So how do we resist it? But if we nosedive into sin, and there we are, uh, guilty, How's the Lord respond? What's his heart towards us uh, in the midst of our sins? So Deuteronomy 4 is in the Bible to reassure us simply this, that though our sins are many, uh, God's mercy is more. God's mercy will triumph over our sin, and it is good, it is good news. So I'm going to read just the last portion of our text, verses 25 to 31, and I'll pray, and then we'll move forward. So verses 25 to, 40, uh, to 31 of Deuteronomy 4. It says, when, you're, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will utterly be destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there 
You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search with him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is God's word. It is true and given to us in love. Let us pray. Father, as always, we pray that you would exalt Jesus from this text into our hearts, the people that you love. Lord, show us Jesus from Deuteronomy 4. Accomplish your purposes in us and through us as a church. Now in this time as we open up your word, please give to me the Holy Spirit's power so that I might be a faithful servant of your word and also a faithful servant of these people. And uh, right now, pray personally uh, to the Lord that he would just reveal himself to you in a wonderful way this morning. So, Father, please take the truths of Deuteronomy 4, plant them deep into us as your people, and then bear fruit for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years ago, uh, I think it was at Central Campus, I don't think it happened here at East, uh, and I think it was on Easter a couple years ago, we had a college student, one of our college students, which by the way, I think today is the day where we have more college students here at East Campus than maybe at Central. I think it might have happened today. Today could have been the turning of the tide, so wow. Um, maybe that's tr not true, but I couldn't, didn't see as many as I do today. It's really exciting to see all of you college students here. Yeah. So, college students at Parkview Church. One of them gave a testimony of what the Lord had done in his life. At the time he gave the testimony on a Sunday, he was a junior, and he narrated the story as when he came into Iowa as a freshman, he came from a, a good Christian home, uh, but he had not yet really grasped and understood uh, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he kind of had more of a nominal faith, although he kind of knew some of the basics, but he had not, had, his heart had not yet really been kind of set on fire for Christ. And so here he was as a junior, showing kind of to the congregation what the Lord had taught him, and he, it was just the best. He summarized uh, what he had learned about the, from the Lord, being at, being at Iowa and being a part of the college ministry. He said, I learned two things. Number one, I need to take my sin seriously. And number two, I need to take the grace of God even more seriously. And I love that because that really is kind of what Deuteronomy 4 is all about. We're going to be called to look at the reality of idolatry. We need to take our sins seriously as God's people. And yet we're going to be confronted with the mercy of God. How great and wonderful the mercy of God truly is. And to translate it into one of my favorite contemporary hymns, if some of you know the song, "Mercy is uh, His Mercy is More, uh, that's, that's what really De Deuteronomy 4 is all about. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. And we're going to see three things, okay? Uh, three aspects of this whole dynamic of our sins there are many, but his mercy is more. We're going to look at the command to guard against sin. The command to guard against sin. Second, God's character to help us guard against sin. God's character to help us guard against sin. Command, character. And then God's promise. Third one's promise. God's promise for how he responds to us when we do sin. God's command, God's character, God's promise. So first, the command. God's command to us 
is that we must guard against idolatry and sin. I hope you heard it in the reading of the passage. But if not, look again with me at verses 15 to 16. It says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image, making an idol for yourself in the form of any figure. And then jump down to verse 23. Moses then re-emphasizes, clarifies what idolatry is. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, by making a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. So the command that God calls us to, as his people, is very clear. We must guard against idolatry, because idolatry is forsaking covenant with God. Remember the story of the Exodus, right? They're at, Hor- the, at Horeb, or what the Exodus calls Sinai. The Lord enters into a covenant with his people, whom he just rescued from slavery. Now, as I use the word covenant, it's really important to understand what, what the Bible means by covenant. In fact, if we don't def- define covenant according to what the Bible says, it's really difficult to actually understand what the Bible is about. Because really, in many ways, the Bible is one large story about covenant. Old Testament is about God's old covenant with his people. And then the New Testament is so the new covenant about uh, his people in Christ. Old covenant, new covenant. So a covenant is a chosen relationship of, this is key, a chosen relationship of exclusive loyalty in which two people make binding promises to each other. Uh, last week, Thomas talked about how marriage is our clearest kind of contemporary example of what a covenant is. In marriage, one spouse to another commits and pledges loyalty and says, basically, I say yes to you, you one person. I say yes, therefore, I am saying no to the 7,300,432 people that are, you know, exist else on the earth, okay? That's what, that's what covenant is. Yes, uh, yes to you, alone, exclusive loyalty, no to everything else. And so uh, the second commandment the Lord gives in the Ten Commandments, part of this covenant, right? God says, okay, I'll be your God, you're my people. Now here's how you walk before me in love and loyalty. He gives Ten Commandments. Well, the second one is you shall ha- not make for yourself an idol, and so here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is picking up that second commandment and going a bit level deeper and kind of pressing it into God's people because he knows their hearts are going to be prone to idolatry as they enter the promised land because all around them are nations that craft little wooden images and metal images, whatever they are, and bow down to them thinking if they do enough stuff for this image, they can kind of curry the God's favor to act uh, in a good way and bring blessing and benefit to their life. And so God is saying, no, you must trust me alone because idolatry is fundamentally an issue of trust. It is an issue of saying, I trust that the Lord who has spoken to us clearly from his word is who he says he is. And I will not forsake him by building and crafting something or building my life upon something that is found in his creation. That's why in verses 16 to 19 you see that there's these prohibitions against don't make it in likeness of human or likeness of fish or likeness of animal, etc. Because we must trust in the Lord alone. Here's the point. Okay, the new point is the point is this, okay? We are people in covenant with God. Okay? Some of us may, might use the language in church of, you know, we accepted Jesus into our hearts, it's fine. Or, you know, you prayed to receive Christ. Again, that, that's that's fine language. 
but what actually fundamentally happens when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, right? We talk about in the church all the time. I have a relationship with Jesus. What we actually mean, according to the Bible, is we have a covenant with Jesus. If you, Parkview Church, by faith, have turned away from your sin and trusted in what Jesus has provided for you through his death and resurrection, you have entered into a covenant with him and therefore are obligated to express your love for him and obedience to him. Jesus says this in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And this is why this is important to clarify, okay? The Lord's command to us to be exclusively loyal to him is because it's very easy, especially in our culture, because there's been kind of vestiges of influence of Christianity, to think of our Christian life primarily as this. We have a lot of different responsibilities and relationships and time and money. And amidst all of the busyness of life, we have accepted Jesus into our life, meaning we've added him onto an already busy schedule. And so you've got your work life and your family life or your friendships and your sexuality and your money and da 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 list goes on. And you also have your spiritual religious life, which Jesus has taken care of. Otherwise, everything else is basically you being consumed by worldly priorities. That's very easy to happen in our culture. But what the covenant, why covenant is so important is to understand that when Jesus has taken you out of sin and darkness and placed you into his love and mercy, he has entered a covenant relationship with you, which means you now are to call to be a disciple who is exclusively loyal to Jesus alone. Now, it doesn't mean that you just spend nine to five only like praying by yourself in a room with your Bible open. But it does mean you look at your nine to five job and your family life or your friendships or your sexuality or your money or et cetera, et cetera. And you see them through the lens of your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ, your covenant with Christ kind of baptizes or floods everything else in your life. That's what normal Christianity is. And so as those in covenant with Christ, we are called to resist idolatry, to seek to find our significance and security in something or someone else apart from the Lord. So the question then is this, how do we guard, I asked the question at the very beginning, how do you guard against this? How do you resist the temptation towards sin and idolatry? What, what does that look like? Well, what verses 20 to 24 show us is that we need to rehearse God's character, rehearse God's character. And Moses identifies three aspects of God's character that we must grab a hold on. Verse, verse 20 is the first one. The Lord is our redeemer. Okay? It says, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are today. You are a people redeemed. Through redemption from slavery, the Lord has brought you to himself. He now value you, values you beyond belief. He treasures you. You are his prized possession. And now you belong to him, and you get to show the world around you what it looks like someone who's been redeemed set free from slavery, not from Egypt, for us, right, if we're in Christ, set free from slavery to sin, and now living our lives in devotion to him. If you remember what uh, Pastor Doug Fern preached in the fall, when he was talking about first, you know, remember that one time we were in the book of 1 Corinthians? It just feels so long ago. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul picks up this language of redemption and applies it to the area of sexuality. I think it's really important for us to grasp. I mean, in our culture, I mean, we're just so confused on how to steward our sexuality in a way that honors the Lord. What Paul says, he does say, do not, you know, lust and do not commit sexual morality. But he says the reason why is because 
He says, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. You see, through the redemption of Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion and resurrection, he has now taken you out of living life, especially your sexuality, all about pleasing yourself whenever you want, however you want. And instead now, he has primary loving authority over how you ought to steward your body, your sexuality. That's just one example of what it means that the Lord is a redeemer applied to the area of sexuality, okay? Second, second, verse 21, it says the Lord not only is a redeemer, but giver, okay? The Lord says in verse 29, will not allow Moses to enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So Moses is saying, you know, juxtaposition between who he, what he, he's not allowed to go to enter land, but he's saying, but you are, you've been given this land. Verse 22, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. The Lord has provided good things. Now think about what this would mean then if we are a people who are remembering this character, how this helps us resist the idolatry of, of money or comfort. In our current contemporary culture, we all would probably recognize that money and the life of the American dream, and th that can be very alluring and very tempting. But what we see here is the Lord is a giver. He's provided everything we need. Romans 8 says, so amazing, if the Lord has provided his only son, if he's given you his only son, how will he not also give you everything that you need? And what he's not saying is, therefore, you get Xboxes and Playstations and a new car. That's not it at all. That's the prosperity gospel. And it's a curse and anathema about biblical Christianity. Instead, what God's saying there is, you have everything you need to be a person of godliness, to be a person who loves the Lord Jesus. The Lord's provided. And that means then this, that if we live in a community of people who understand the Lord's provided for us, we can live in such a way that we can make sacrifices with how we give our money to God's church, to his mission, because we know that he's, he will provide everything we need. And oftentimes he uses our brothers and sisters to help us and to encourage us and to financially provide. That's why the church, one of the functions of the church. But, but the thing is, right, it's God's character and understanding his character as someone who is a provider, who is faithful to give us what we need, that we can make these risks and sacrifices as a church. Thirdly and finally, the character that is outlined in verse 24 is the Lord is jealous. The Lord is jealous. It says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He is a Lord of white-hot, exclusive passion for his people. And like any faithful, loving spouse who sees his beloved forget and forsake the covenant vows that they've made, right? What does it say in verse 23? The idolatry is forgetting the covenant with God. Of course, that would lead any good spouse, any faithful spouse, towards, towards a jealousy and anger of, no, that's wrong. We have pledged faithfulness to each other, and therefore to turn away from that is wickedness. And so what we see is this. Okay, you see the command, resist idolatry. We see the, the motivation to do that, to resist, is found in the character of God, of becoming a people. That's rehearsing the character of God, reminding one another the character of God. We see now why sin is so horrific, why idolatry is so terrible in the eyes of the Lord. It's because of who God is. The great 17th century prayer on humility says it like this. You, O Lord, do not play in convincing me of sin. Satan does not play in tempting me to it. I do not play when I sink in the deep mire of sin. For sin is no game, no toy, no trinket. Let me never forget, this is so crucial, let me never forget that the heinousness of sin, the evil of sin, lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. 
as in the greatness of the person sinned against. The Lord has revealed himself in his character to be a God of, of redemption, of glad-hearted generosity, of one who is a jealous Lord who is exclusively committed to us, and therefore sin is a friend, uh, an affront to this God that we have ca been called to love. So verse 15, Parkview, take care, watch yourselves carefully. So here's just the question. Here's the application. Parkview, right now, is there any sin or temptation towards sin in your life that your conscience or the word of God is clearly saying no to, but you are being lured into it right now? If so, whatever maybe the Holy Spirit, as I was praying for this, maybe the Holy Spirit has brought something to mind. If so, verse 15, you must guard yourself so carefully against sin because of who God is, because you've been redeemed, because he's provided everything you need, because he's a holy, jealous God of love who is committed to you. So because of who God is, let's say no. Let's say no to our temptation toward idolatry and sin. Okay, wonderful. Well, we've seen the command against idolatry. We see how the character of God compels us to say no. Now let's focus on verses 25 to 31 to see the, the promise of our God when we sin. Because here's the real reality, right? Some of us, we think, oh, wow, Wade, I wish I would have heard this last week before this week was an utter disaster and failure in my sin. Maybe some of you come into church and you just feel so numb. You sing, to sing a song about Jesus maybe even makes you feel like a hypocrite. Because it's about, oh, love Jesus. And you just don't have, because you just feel so filled with regret about what happened this week or last month or whatever it is. So how does the Lord respond to us in our sin? Well, look at the promise that we're given in verses 25 to 31. And there's actually kind of a twofold promise. The first is the bad news, is the promise of judgment. Verse 25, when you father children and children's children, Moses now has turned to the future. He was present up till verse 24. Now he's looking at the future, verse 25 and following. And you grow old in the land if you act corruptly by making an idol and by doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord so as to provoke him to anger. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that, here's the first kind of promise, the, the bad news, you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan. You will not live long in it. You will be utterly destroyed. Verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. He will drive you there. In verse 28, there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands. There in the place of failure, in the place of sin, there you will realize just the emptiness and futility it is to pursue idolatry. And so here, the promise is one of judgment. Yet, judgment's not the final word. In Deuteronomy 4, the Lord's future judgment against our failure and sin moves towards the radiance of his mercy. Look down at verse 29. But from there, from there, right? What was from what's there? It's the place of exile, the place of judgment because of failure and idolatry. From there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, all these things meaning what? All the judgment that was just promised. When the judgment comes upon you, latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For... The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with the fathers that he swore to them. So what's happening here? The promise reveals a pattern. It's twofold. Okay, In the midst of judgment, 
against idolatrous failure, the Lord reveals himself to be the God of mercy towards those very failures. In the place of judgment, God's mercy shines forth. And the good news is this. We are not Old Testament Israelites. We are New Testament Christians. And we know something that they could not really quite grasp. And it is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because don't you see in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the resolution of this passage. Where we see in the place of judgment, God comes as the God of mercy towards those who have forsaken him in unfaithfulness and idolatry. At the cross of Jesus, God the Father pours out his angry judgment towards our sin upon his beloved Son. The Son who expressed loyal, perfect obedience and love for the Father, he is receiving the condemnation we deserve. This is the heart of the gospel. The very core of what Christianity is all about. God condemns sin, our sin, in Christ while granting mercy to all who would turn from their sin and receive Christ. Romans 3, the Apostle Paul picks this up and says that at the cross, God is both just, just to condemn sin, to punish sin, because he's not going to just sweep it under the rug. It must be condemned, and he does condemn sin. He is just, but also the justifier, the one who makes those righteous who have faith in Christ. Justifier and the one who gives mercy. That is the paradox of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's where this passage leads us. Because the promise of the gospel is, yes, our sins may be many, but the mercy of God in Christ is so much more. This is amazing. This is what I would call just outrageous deliciousness that we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 4, where the Lord delights to show mercy to you at the place of your greatest failure. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. No human could make up how good this good news really is. I mean, look at the text again, verse 29. But from there, that place of judgment, that place of failure, that place of shame and guilt, from there, when you are in that tribulation, verse 30, and all these things come upon you, at that place, the Lord, the Lord is merciful. You will turn back. You will return to the Lord for he is a God who is merciful and faithful to his covenant. He never forgets the covenant he has made. A covenant of promised salvation to all of those who repent and believe. Parkview, in the place of your very greatest sin and failure, through the cross of Christ, God comes not in wrath and judgment, in disappointment and disapproval. He comes with mercy. He comes with mercy. The thing that you hate most about yourself is the very place where Jesus is right there loving you and pouring mercy in your heart. Are you opening your heart to the mercy of Christ? This is how shocking and outrageous the gospel is, but it is true because it is from God's word. Praise the Lord for such mercy that outpaces any and every one of our sins. The gospel of Christ is for failure. It's not for good people. The gospel of Jesus, the mercy of God in Christ, is for people who can't get their act together and who keep failing and who keep struggling. That is what the gospel is for. It is what the Lord delights to, to do, to give mercy to those who are in distress. Haddon, right now, my son, is sick. 
He's got a, just a terribly runny nose, and he's just fussy. He's in distress. And this is the first time he actually has been sick because uh, since he's born, basically it's been COVID, so, you know, he's just been like, like an encapsulation of safety. And it's been interesting because as he's been sick, I've noticed something in my heart that maybe I've not really sensed before is this deep kind of compassion and mercy. Those of you who are parents probably know what I'm talking about, where your, your, your child is so afflicted with this sickness and they're struggling so much. It doesn't make you like detract from them, but actually move toward them in mercy. And, and I think that's just a, a window into the heart of Christ, is that when he sees his people with all of their sins, their many sins, he comes with his radical mercy. So I want to just conclude in two ways. This is how this all shapes us here at Parkview Church, okay? If you notice in verse 30, it says this, God's people in coming future, and now it falls upon us because we're part of the new covenant, the fulfillment of Christ, it says, you will return to the Lord, one, return, and you will obey his voice, returning, repentance, obedience, and then look how it roots it, why? Verse 31, for he is a merciful God. So because of the mercy of, gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should become a people that are simultaneously always repenting and honest about our sin while also striving for obedience because we love Jesus, both. We should not be a people that are afraid of obedience because, oh no, I'm afraid that I'll just depart from grace if I really strive to be obedient. No, we obey because we love Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So we want to be a people of obedience, but it's obedience that is empowered by mercy. We are people that have been so mercied by God that we want to obey him. We want to love him. We want to please our father. We want to do what's right. We want to resist sin. We want to put to death that sin that constantly entangles us. We want to obey him. We're going to be a people that more and more obey his voice, right? It says in verse 30, you will obey his voice. A people that follow the word of God together because that's where his voice is. We will be a people, but we'll also be a returning people. And so for those of you here who are not yet a Christian, uh, you need to understand two things. Number one, God's judgment is real. It's not a joke. The Bible is so clear. You're going against God's word if you refuse to think God will judge. No, God will judge those who refuse to embrace the mercy of the gospel. He will judge, and it will either be now in this life, but it will definitely be in the life to come. Judgment is real. And yet the offer of God, the gospel, is mercy, is forgiveness. He doesn't treat you according to your sins. Because that's what he's done for Christ. And so receive Christ today. If you are someone who right now has not yet received Christ, today is the day, the offer of the mercy of the gospel. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive. And all it takes is you just naming your failure and sin to Jesus and then receiving from him his life and forgiveness. And let's be an obedient people. That's what we just talked about. Knowing who God is empowers us to resist idolatry. First John 5, it says this. The very end, the very last verse, it says, Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. That's the last verse of the Apostle John, one of the friends of Jesus. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. There you go. But then, the verse above, he says, because we know him who is true. It is knowing the character of God from the word of God that empowers us to resist sin and idolatry. So, because of his mercy, let's be a returning people of repentance and obedient people to his word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word to us in Deuteronomy 4. I pray that you plant it deep in us and that you would bear fruit for your glory. Lord, I pray for those of us here. Um, right now, sin feels like it's crouching at our door. Oh, Lord, 
would you refresh us again with your mercy, your mercy towards us that leads us to that repentance and that resistance from sin. Help us embrace your character, which is true, your character of love, your redemption of us, Lord. And then I pray for, for those of us here who um, we've got to obey. We've got to take your word seriously, Lord. Help us do that because of your mercy. This whole thing is empowered and drenched in mercy. And so please make the mercy of the gospel clear to us, we pray, uh, for your glory. Make us this people. Amen.